You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, ace copy editor and award-winning volunteer for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. This is December 18th, 2022, and this is episode 204 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we'll listen to part one of a two-part interview with the past and present owners of Borden Flats Lighthouse in Fall River, Massachusetts. First, I want to talk a little bit about a great New England tradition that's related to lighthouses, the Flying Santa. Cindy, can you help me out? Let's give a little history of the Flying Santa program. Sure, Jeremy. The Flying Santa tradition goes back to Christmas in 1929 to a float plane pilot named William Winkapaw in Friendship, Maine. We're going to listen to an audio clip now from a past episode. This is Brian Tagg, who is the longtime president of Friends of Flying Santa, talking about how Captain Bill Winkapaw started the flights. Captain Winkapaw was a native of Friendship, Maine, but he got his title captain from being a boat captain. Before he got into aviation, he did a lot of boating and fishing, and he uh, got into flying and was uh, pretty well known as an early pioneer in aviation. And he flew um, seaplanes and wheeled planes, and he uh, got into transporting freight and passengers. And um, at one point, he was shipping gold over the mountains in South America and the Andes. But his uh, base of operations, for the most part, was up in the Rockland area. With his job of flying around to the different islands, he'd be picking up passengers or delivering freight. He got to know a lot of the lighthouse keepers and the life-saving crews. And um, just one Christmas in 1929, he, he thought it'd be neat to uh, recognize them on the holiday. So he put together about a half dozen packages of, I would say, magazines, newspaper, coffee, tea, candy, and things like that. And uh, he went up Christmas morning and made the run and threw the packages out and uh, went back home and had Christmas dinner with his family. And uh, in the days that followed, he got a lot of feedback from the uh, keepers and their families, how much they appreciated being recognized. He realized that this was something special for them and, and decided that he'd make a tradition and do it every year. In the mid-1930s, Edward Rowe Snow, a school teacher, maritime historian, and author in Winthrop, Massachusetts, became involved in the flights. He would eventually become the sole flying Santa, keeping the flights going through 1980 and flying to as many as 176 lighthouses a year. We're going to hear an audio clip now from a Boston radio program called Contact from the 1960s. The host, Bob Kennedy, interviewed Edward Rose Snow just before he took off as the flying Santa. It's a rather cold, kind of snowy morning here at Norwood Airport, and the gentleman standing next to me uh, looks like Santa Claus. In fact, kind of a special Santa Claus, a flying Santa Claus. And as I look a little closer, it uh, kind of looks like a fellow we know very well here on Contact, Ed Rowe Snow. How are you, Ed? And kind of a little early Merry Christmas to you. I'm very happy to be here, and I'm feeling pretty good, and Merry Christmas to you, Bob. Ed Rowe Snow, I thought you mainly stayed aboard or near the sea. How come the airplane, and how come the flying Santa Claus? Well, we fly out over the sea in this plane, and we will leave in just a few moments. We will cover about 1,600 miles today and go down into Maryland as our greatest objective of the day. Also, we will stop at Martha's Vineyard. We will stop at Nantucket Island. We will stop at Block Island. And meanwhile, as we go to and 
from those various airports, we will drop from our plane about 112 bundles. And so how long have you been the Flying Center? My first year was 1936, and I've been doing it every year, except one when I was in the North African invasion. So this will be the 27th trip. Edward Rowe Snow did the flights most years with his wife, Anna Merle, and their daughter, Dolly. Next, we're going to hear a clip of Dolly Snow Bicknell talking about her earliest memories of the Flying Santa flights. So you first went on a Flying Santa flight when you were one year old, or less than one year old, right? And right. Uh, I don't think you remember too much about that one, but okay. what are some of your earliest memories of the Flying Santa flights? Well, words like rough, bumpy. I loved that open window. As soon when they don't, he'd open the window to drop the packages out. It was just so nice. That's a mare. <laughs> yes. Um, it was usually a five-seat plane. I remember Piper, Apache, Aztec, Comanche. I don't know if those are real names, but I remember those. The pilot would always be in the front left, and my dad would be in the window right behind him with that special window that opened at the top. And then the front right would usually be a photographer and behind him next to my dad would be my mother. And then I'd be in the back in the middle with packages all around me, packed left, right, up, down. And did I say rough and bumpy? I think I did. Each year it would be, should we try Dramamine? Should we try no Dramamine? Should we try breakfast? No breakfast? Made no difference. It was rough and it was difficult, but I kind of knew it was kind of special because everybody was pretty happy when they saw him. The Hull Lifesaving Museum on Boston's South Shore kept the tradition alive for some years, and then the Friends of Flying Santa was formed as a separate nonprofit organization in 1997. We're going to hear another clip of Brian Tagg. In this one, he talks about the purpose of the flights today. Primary purpose of the flights is to show appreciation for the Coast Guard families. I think it's an underappreciated branch in the military. They do an awful lot with very little, and they don't get much recognition for what they do. And and I've gotten to be friends with a lot of these folks over the years, and you know these men and women, whether they're on cutters that are gone for three months or boat stations for you know two days on and uh, two days off. It's it's a it's a tough family experience because you're you could be moving from Massachusetts to Oregon to Florida to Texas and uh, you know they don't always have family around for the holidays so to be here in New England and be able to look forward to the Flying Santa event and know that Santa is coming to your mother or father's Coast Guard station because you know you're you're special and we're showing appreciation for it and you know Flying Santa is uh, is looking out for these Coast Guard families and um, we're happy to do it and it's a it's, we've been told it's one of the uh, biggest morale events of the year for the Coast Guard families, and we're up to 1,200 Coast Guard kids from every Coast Guard unit from the Canadian border down to Long Island, New York. I've seen up close how much the visits of the Flying Santa mean to the Coast Guard families. Cindy, you've been at Coast Guard Station Portsmouth Harbor a couple of times when the Flying Santa arrived, right? Yes, I have. We, meaning Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, try to coincide decorating Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse for the holidays with Flying Santa's visit to the Coast Guard station there. That way, the lighthouse looks festive for Flying Santa's arrival. Some of our volunteers get together in the cold. It's almost always really, really cold and windy to put up our lights and wreaths. And then we stay a little bit later to watch the helicopter land and uh, to see Santa giving gifts to the Coast Guard kids. 
Yeah, and have you noticed the reaction of the kids when Santa's coming in by helicopter? Oh my goodness. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I'm excited. It's exciting for me as an adult to watch it. So yeah, the kids are super excited. Yeah. I've been there a number of times now for it, but I've also been at some of the other locations, uh, mostly Coast Guard stations where Santa comes uh, as part of this uh, tradition. And it seems like there's always at least one kid, one little girl or boy who will, you know, when Santa gets out of the helicopter, this one little kid will yell out Santa and run to Santa and <laughs> so give him cute. a hug, you know, <laughs> it's like yeah. some kind of rule that that has to happen, but they're, they're so excited about it. Yeah. So it is, a, it's, it's really a very special tradition and uh, I hope it'll continue for many years to come. Absolutely. If people would like to donate so that the Flying Santa can continue as a gesture of gratitude to the Coast Guard, it's possible to make a donation through the Friends of Flying Santa website at flyingsanta.org. There's also an online gift shop on the site where you can buy Flying Santa clothing, books, and other items. Yeah, like the uh, annual Flying Santa stuffed animal. Those are yes. always <laughs> yeah, those are great. It's a husky this year, a white husky dog oh. with a Flying Santa hoodie on. It's a different animal each year. You can actually buy some of the, the past year's uh, animals on the site as well. Ooh, you can collect okay. them all. Yeah, yeah, they're great. Uh, so this year's flights have gone well. I just saw Brian last night. But Friends of Flying Santa is already fundraising for next year's flights. Every dollar is very helpful. Uh, so again, it's flyingsanta.org if people are interested in donating or checking out the online gift shop. So Cindy, let's tell everyone about Borden Flats Lighthouse and today's guests. Sure, Jeremy. The city of Fall River, Massachusetts, situated where the Taunton River flows into Mount Hope Bay, was famed as the textile capital of the world in the 19th century. At one time, more than 100 cotton mills in Fall River employed over 30,000 people. A lighthouse was established on Borden Flats at the mouth of the Taunton River in 1881. It took the form of a cast iron tower on a caisson base with a fixed red light 47 feet above mean high water. Borden Flats Lighthouse was battered in the hurricane of September 21, 1938, like most lighthouses on New England's south-facing coast. The storm left the tower with a pronounced tilt, which it still has. A new, much wider cylindrical caisson was added around the old one to provide more protection. In September 2006, it was announced that the lighthouse would be available for transfer to a suitable applicant under the guidelines of the National Historic Lighthouse Preservation Act. No organizations expressed interest, which meant that the lighthouse was sold at auction to the general public. The sale of the lighthouse through an auction in 2008 couldn't be finalized, so another auction was held in 2010. The winner was Nick Korstad of Portland, Oregon, who bought the property for more than $56,000 with the intention of fixing it up and opening it to the public. In 2011, he gave the lighthouse a new color scheme with a red band and a red lantern roof. Nick Korstad did much restoration of the lighthouse inside and out, and he made it available for public tours and overnight stays. In May 2018, he sold the property to a new owner, Kevin Farias, who has continued opening it for overnight stays. We have two guests today. Nick Korstad now owns the Big Bay Point Lighthouse Bed and Breakfast on Michigan's Upper Peninsula, while Kevin just finished another season at Borden Flats. I spoke with them in late October. The conversation covered a lot of ground and I've divided it into two parts. We'll hear part one today and part two next week. So let's listen to part one of our conversation about Borden Flats Lighthouse now. 
I'm speaking this afternoon with Kevin Farias and Nick Korstad, uh, and we are going to be talking about a lighthouse that has played a very large and special role, I think, in both their lives. That lighthouse is Borden Flats in Fall River, Massachusetts. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Nick and Kevin. I really appreciate it. Thank Good you. To be here. And uh, I want to, before we get into some questions here, I want to encourage you both to uh, to respond. If either of you says anything, the other one wants to respond in some way, throw something in, whatever it might be, comment, question to each other, anything like that. I, I encourage you to to please speak up because I want this to be a just a friendly, casual kind of three way conversation here. So, Kevin, it's a pleasure meeting you for the first time. Nick, I've, I've known for, geez, how many years now, Nick? It's been a few. Uh, we're going on over a decade now. Yeah, easily over a decade. And I just spent uh, a week at your beautiful Big Bay Point Lighthouse in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. That was fantastic last uh, April. Thank you again for getting me to, geez, like 60 light. What was it? 60 lighthouses? Maybe it was 30. I don't know. It was a I lot of we, lighthouses. We visually saw 40. Okay, four. Okay, yeah, including little <laughs> dots in the distance, but it was it was a great week. So let me let me start with with you, Nick. As we said, we've known each other a long time. You've been on the podcast a couple of times, and I spent some time with you recently. But fill in a little bit for our listeners. Remind me, remind all of us where you're from and how you first became involved with lighthouses. Yeah, so I'm originally from the West Coast. I kind of split time between Portland, Oregon, and Squim, Washington. And it was uh, the Dungeness Lighthouse that was in Squim that really got me more sparked. I liked lighthouses prior to that, but, you know, having a, a lighthouse keeper there until I think around 94 kind of got me wanting to do this. And then when they took the keeper away, seeing what the U.S. Lighthouse Society had done with getting the keepers program and saving that lighthouse kind of stuck with me. And um, through the years, you know, I figured, you know, one day it was a good time to start buying these lighthouses when they started selling them. But uh you know, that's a, that was an interesting subject because, you know, they're, they weren't easy when they first started selling them to purchase, you know, they right. came with a lot of strings and stuff like that. So, but uh, again, it was mostly just something that's been since my childhood. So I, I can't explain where it came from the urge. It just, it was just an urge, a craving. Yeah. Well, I can believe me. I understand. If anybody understands, I understand. Uh, and uh, our mutual friend, of course, Chad Kaiser is the manager of the new dungeon, not new dungeoness, uh, Dungeness yeah, Lighthouse. It is yeah. New Dungeness. Yeah. yeah. I keep uh, having a slip there because I was just in England. And I visited the old Dungeness Lighthouse. So I get confused with all that. And there is an old and new Dungeness Lighthouse in England as well. Yeah. But yeah. New Dungeness Lighthouse in Washington. So Chad, our, our friend, yeah. is the uh, the manager there. He's yeah, been on the podcast job. as well. Yes. Well, let me ask you first, why did you decide to buy Borden Flats Lighthouse in 2010? How did that happen? Oh. Uh, the first lighthouse I'd purchased was the Wolf Trap Lighthouse in Virginia. And uh, not knowing anything about logistics of these offshore lights, that was about two and a half miles, I think, from the nearest shoreline. And uh, I learned the lesson that, you know, it's not going to be easy to access. And so when Bourne Flats came up, it's only about maybe 2,500 feet offshore from a marina. And I figured, okay, so for this to be functional, it's inland and uh, it's, a, you know, easy to at least get to until I purchased it and realized that it was in a Southwest wind channel at the mouth of a river and that the waves and stuff out there on every day in the summer can be a uh, more extreme than the open ocean, but that's for Kevin to answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, well, Kevin, I'm going to get to you in just a second, but, but Nick, why, uh, why did you end up uh, more recently selling Borden flats lighthouse and buying big Bay point lighthouse in Michigan? I think that was 2018. Is that right? That you did yeah. that. 
Yeah. So my, my overall goal when I started, you know, buying the lighthouses and selling them and in, in essence, kind of, I guess I would say flipping them was to get one on land. But unfortunately I wasn't born with a trust fund or lots of money. So I had to work my way through, you know, the, the offshore lights, the ones that most people didn't want to pay for or adopt. And uh, that was the avenue and born flats was a good, a good spot for some reason, you know, you were very helpful and, you know, helping me with advertising and stuff like that. And it became very popular. So uh, when Kevin stepped forth, he provided the next puzzle piece to allow me to move forward and uh, purchase big Bay to which I can live in and drive my car to. And, you know, it's just a little less stressful, I think. Yeah. I actually went out with you. It was actually the first time you visited Borden flats lighthouse, right? With your mom. Yeah. 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 Right. I remember, yeah, we left, you know, the Coast Guard. I think we met at that, the marina, and yeah. uh, it was a cold day. I remember seeing icicles. It was December. Things. I think it was December. <laughs> I think what, the week before, it was like 70 degrees. <laughs> and then yeah. <laughs> we got there in like a, the cold snap. But uh, yeah. it was a very, very derelict building when we toured it. It wasn't much to the property. Yeah, yeah. I want to get more into that shortly, but uh, let me turn to Kevin. And uh, first of all, Kevin, are you from Rhode Island originally? Is that is I that am, correct? I am from originally from Warren, Rhode Island, which mm-hmm. is actually just the stone's throw away from Borden Flats across Mount Hope Bay. So yeah, yeah. I grew know up Warren. in the area, boating in the area, um, and ironically probably drove by Borden Flats a thousand times, either by water or over the Braga Bridge on the highway, looking down at it um, mm-hmm. and always admired it. And uh, it was it was ironic how it all kind of came together. It's a very interesting story. But thanks. Well, we to want to hear that. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, so uh, I'll start from the from from the beginning. Um, it, we were uh, we were celebrating my wife and I um, our 25th anniversary. And uh, I thought I would surprise her. I'm the lighthouse enthusiast. Uh, she's not so much, but I know what that's I always, like. Yeah, <laughs> I had always wanted to stay in a lighthouse. And uh, for those who are familiar with Newport, Rhode Island, we have Rose Island uh, Lighthouse, beautiful island lighthouse there. So I tried to per, uh, to um, to book an evening for our exact anniversary date, which was August 24th. And unfortunately, got online, uh, did a Google search and contacted them and they were completely sold out. Mm -hmm. Um, The ironic thing was in the Google search, uh, the number two, um, obviously, listing said Borden Flats Lighthouse. And I thought that was a little strange having been in the area, knowing about the lighthouse and um, had absolutely zero idea. Uh, that it was available for overnights. And, uh, but Nick's phone number was there and I gave it a call. And uh, luckily he was available on August 24th. And I got to say, we went out. It was an absolutely gorgeous summer night. I loved every second of it, fell in love with the lighthouse. And also weirdly, um, as soon as I walked in, I, I really felt that I had been there before uh, and, and never have, <clears throat> have obviously. So um, Nick was a great host and, um, we got friendly, um, after the stay, uh, and being a photographer, uh, I had volunteered to come out and ph- photograph the lighthouse anytime he liked. We had several conversations and, uh, in one of those conversations, I think I said, <laughs> Hey, if you're ever going to sell this place, let me know. I live right across the bay. And 
Nick didn't forget that. <laughs> and when it was his, you know, when it was time to uh, to uh, sell Borden Flats, I know that he had put a listing out there, and uh, I eventually saw it, and uh, I gave him a quick call, and um, and he called me back and said, "Guess what? I'm not going to need the photos." <laughs> and I said, "Why?" And he said, "I'm selling," and uh, that just really sparked it for me. I did not sleep. <laughs> for weeks after that with the uh, you know with the possibility of of figuring out a way how uh you know i might be able to purchase it and continue the legacy that nick has started mm-hmm. um but uh, um unfortunately uh, i remember the phone call from nick was in january and uh, i immediately got off the phone and said to my wife honey honey um our lighthouse it's for sale and she said honey honey we ain't buying no lighthouse <laughs> um, uh-huh. at the time both our kids were still in college and uh and <laughs> we didn't have two nickels to rub together to even think about a purchase like that so um but i dreamed about it uh night after night and Eventually, a couple of months later, Nick called and said, hey, are you interested? I'm, I'm, I'm ready to sell. Uh, and, and, and I know you have the passion for it. And I just wanted to make sure that, um, you know, to see if you were interested. Little did he know, I had actually gone to seven local banks in the area looking for a loan to purchase it and was turned down by every one of them. Very simply, they said the underwriters would never ever want to finance an offshore lighthouse um, in the middle of the bay. And so I couldn't get a loan. And so I had to tell him that, unfortunately, I'm kind of, you know, out of the race here. Uh, I'm trying to purchase it. I just couldn't get the uh, the funding. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, remarkably, I think Nick f- pretty much felt that, you know, he, he wanted me to have this lighthouse over. I know he had a couple other buyers uh, ready mm-hmm. to go. And amazingly, uh, he's the one who gave me the idea because he said, well, if you can't get a bank loan, did you consider a home equity loan? Mm -hmm. And I thought, no, I hadn't. Um, Quickly call my bank. Unfortunately, what I had in equity was uh, about half of what the asking price was. Uh, And again, that bank said the same thing. They would not give me a bridge loan to make the difference. So I was Mm -hmm. so depressed. And I had to call Nick back and say, I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm out of the running here. And he was very disappointed. And I just, I, I just remember a few days past, he called me uh, on a Monday morning in my office. And he said, uh, guess what? My mom and I discussed the sale and we decided that we wanted no one else in the world to own this lighthouse but you. And remarkably, they had said, if you if you can get the funding, um, we would be happy to give it to you for, you know, what your home equity loan is available to you, which was absolutely amazing. I started shaking. I remember I, I got off. I, I, I raced out of my office. I ran to my bank and um, and I told him the situation and I said, because Nick, I think Nick, weren't you closing with, within a few days or you were getting ready to agree to, an, uh, to, yep. to, to the sale? So, so what happened here at uh, Big Bay is the, the bank would only do a 50% loan because they didn't want to finance a lighthouse. <laughs> <And> <laughs> See? <laughs> to the dollar is what I needed for a down payment. I said, you know what? This is an opportunity here of a lifetime. I'm not going to be greedy on Born Flats. 
And I said, Hey, this is what I need for a down payment. Let's offer that to Kevin. And you know, and, you know, we both went out. So yeah. I have to say, you know, which was absolutely gracious. And I can't thank you and your family enough um, for allowing me the opportunity. Uh, the funny thing was, is that um, I, you know, as I raced to my bank uh, and I went into the bank manager and I told him, I said, I, I, I need to get these funds like within a couple of days. I mean, what kind of application process is there, et cetera, et cetera. And he left his office and he walked back in two minutes later with a check. <laughs> uh -huh. and I, I just started shaking and i called nick immediately and i said nick i've got the check <laughs> so we were both happy and um a few days later uh i owned a lighthouse and it was mm -hmm. and it's been the most fascinating five years ever since mm -hmm. I would say mm -hmm. that was probably one of the fastest lighthouse sales in <laughs> wow. yeah, that's all huh. i think it's sold in like in literally you know two weeks almost basically it was yeah absolutely yeah it was yeah. it was crazy and here's the ironic thing uh nick had obviously um had some reservations uh we i'll never forget we closed on a wednesday afternoon uh on the lighthouse and that night he had guests and he said well guess what you're gonna have to come shadow me because i need to get to big bay by Saturday morning. <laughs> and so that Wednesday night, I shadowed him. Thursday, he took me on a tour of the lighthouse to show me, you know, how to operate it and whatnot. And uh, wasn't it wasn't it Thursday morning, like three in the morning, you jumped in your car and drove to Big Bay and yeah, and there I was on my own um, trial by fire <laughs> and, swim. Uh, started entertaining the guests um, and have been doing it for five, five years now. Yeah. From experience, I know that Nick, you're uh, persuasive and generous. So I just wanted to, to throw Absolutely. that in. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. We, sure. we can't take it with us. And so if it, if it works, you know, I always tell people, don't be greedy. If you mm -hmm. if you can get ahead in life and and nothing looks good in the lighthouse community of when you take a lighthouse and make it two, three million dollars off of it and have uh, paid fifty thousand dollars for it. So you know, yeah. it doesn't look good on you in the community. So mm -hmm. sounds good to me. Uh, so Kevin, just a little bit more about your background. I understand you have a background in video production. I think you're coming to us today from your video studio there is that right yes, yes i've um i've actually been a video producer and photographer uh for 42 years now um and i'm currently employed uh with a large construction organization i've been here 26 years so it has been difficult to continue my full-time career uh and also almost practically full-time operating and managing a lighthouse so yeah yeah uh, it's been a lot it's been a lot yeah I also I was reading some biographical material about you online, and apparently you've had a lot of involvement with youth sports and also teaching video production to to is it high school students? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah. As my kids were, um, um, they're in their mid twenties now, but as my kids were going through um, junior high and high school, and obviously played sports, I volunteered and I ended up um, being the president of our local little league for 12 years, coach, mm -hmm. vice president, you know, chief cook and bottle washer, I guess. 
and at the same time to uh, convinced our schools, uh, you know, that uh, some kids might be interested in a video program. Mm -hmm. uh, so we actually started a, um, a TV station. Uh, I donated um, a lot of my older equipment uh, and we started a, <laughs> a TV station in the school where we did live news broadcasts every morning. And basically, you know, when the principal does the morning announcements, well, mm -hmm. we did them live with, with students as anchors. Oh, um, wow. And I taught them <laughs> video production, great. editing. You know, we built our own teleprompters, uh, things like that. So that was fun doing that through the four or five years that my kids were going through school. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is fantastic. It brings back some memories uh, when I was in high school, which was uh, a long time ago. I'm talking early 1970s. Uh, the, this one English teacher started a video production class. There's nothing like that had ever been done at that school before. And I think there was a black and white uh, camera and monitor borrowed from somewhere else, like one day a week that we got to use. And we put on a play or something and and uh, videotaped Excellent. it. So that was my first exposure to video production. Uh, but it's such a such a great thing. Obviously, uh, TV plays such a big role in everybody's lives. And it's important to know how to how to use it. And those of us in the lighthouse community are still trying to figure out how to use it to our best best advantage. Maybe that's something you and I could talk about uh, sometime. Absolutely. Kevin. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so let me just ask you, you kind of answered this already in a way because uh, you talked about the, the local lighthouses there and how you were interested. But did you would you say you were a lighthouse aficionado before you bought Borden Flats Lighthouse? Kevin? Well, I, um, not from a historical standpoint, um, mm -hmm. but from a visual standpoint as a photographer. Growing up and living in Rhode Island and Narragansett Bay, and then of course, uh, Mount Hope Bay, I had been so interested in photographing all the lighthouses in the area. Um, and so just, and, and, and again, just felt like, hmm, maybe in a past life, there was some connection there. Uh, but yeah. I've always, always loved lighthouses uh, and love the visual parts of them. Um, and try to always perfect wonderful photographs of the ones that I've visited. So yeah, I've only really got into the history part of it. You know, once I got involved with Borden Flats. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Nick, I want to get back uh, to you. You were starting to talk a little bit about the shape the lighthouse was in when you bought at Borden Flats. Yeah. Uh, can you say a little bit more about that? Of course, I, again, I was there with, on your first visit, so I have some idea what it was like, but what were the, the challenges you faced right away when you bought it? Yeah, I think uh, honestly, the the lighthouse was of ones that have been auctioned off was probably the interior was the cleanest. It was pretty like broom swept inside. But as far as exterior goes, you know, the case, everything was so rusted out, you know, the paint and everything like that. And the birds had really, you know, found a refuge out there. And yep. I remember cleaning out those gutters. And I think I got like 55 gallon buckets of bird guano. And I don't know how the, the poles even could support all the weight from that. And I just remember dumping it all down on the foundation below. And then um, a lot of the concrete on the top, I know there was about a 20 by 15 foot section that was gone. Remember on the back, it was just all gravel. And I remember having to bring bags of concrete out there on a Zodiac. And I remember I filled the Zodiac up with so much concrete once that it started to go torpedo down into the water. And I had to reverse it really fast so that it wouldn't sink. I was like, all right, 20 bags of concrete is too much. We better, you know, go back to the dock as fast as we can get. But um, other than that, you know, it was more of a cosmetic situation. You know, that was a pretty structurally sound structure. There wasn't anything 
that I noticed or anyone else noticed that it was severe. Yeah. And, I, and it might have just been that it's location and that it had that lower foundation that was just an easier one for the Coast Guard to keep properly maintained. Because, yeah. you know, you get to other spark plug lighthouses, you know, such as like uh, Hog Island Shoal, you know, the thing's coming apart at all the seams, but it's in the same district. And, but it's a lot more challenging to access. Yeah. So. Yeah. Borden Flash does have a slight tilt, right? Because yeah. the, from the Hurricane of 38, right? Yeah, you know, the stories I've heard, you know, is that, you know, where that red stripe is on the center, that the water went above that red stripe, and then the waves were going over the top of the lantern room. So I don't know the, you know, if that's true or not. But uh, the other reason why the place could be so stout is that the damage from that hurricane, the government actually went and fixed it. So it was technically all reinforced and adding that lower case on it. There's right. actually two caissons there. there. There was the one that was replaced, I want to say, maybe in the fifties or sixties. And, uh, I mean, maybe Kevin knows he has the structure plans. Maybe it was sooner than that, maybe seventies or eighties that they put another round of that sheet pile around and back. Yeah, that was, uh, that was 63. According 63. To the records okay. I, so yeah. So it's got, it's got three foundations on it, so it shouldn't go anywhere. Yeah. To clarify again, it had the original case on, it was built on in 1882, 81, 1881. Yeah. And then after the hurricane of 38, they reinforced it with a much wider uh, base and uh, st uh, st steel, I guess, steel uh, shell on the outside of that. Steel shell, yeah. yeah. I think but it was that, really similar mm -hmm. to like Sharps Island Lighthouse where that one in Chesapeake Bay where it's tilted at like 20 degrees from the ice flows. I think it was a similar situation where the water pressure just kind of tilted it more into the mud and I don't yeah. think it would ever tip over, but yeah. Know. It's nice but, to have that lower foundation. Yeah. Well, Sharps Island tilt, the tilt there is, like you said, like 20%. It's a really yeah. extreme <laughs> tilt, but uh, Borden Flats is probably more like what? One or 2%. It's not, it's not much. Yeah, they say it's about five, it's about five degrees. Um, yeah. Five degrees. Hardly visible, but there is an angle that you can catch and I've caught it on camera. Mm -hmm. <laughs> where okay. you see it quite often yeah. Um, yeah. yeah but thankfully they did do the second case on uh because that allows a much larger apron or deck mm -hmm. uh for for guests to enjoy uh yep. where we can put out you know uh, lounge chairs and tables and uh matter of fact when i was purchasing uh the engineer that came out had uh had calculated that we with different events um, we can fit upwards of 200 people, uh, cocktail style, um, wow. standing up and whatnot, on that deck. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, shortly after uh, I had purchased it from Nick, um, we did have a fundraiser for local charity. Uh, mm -hmm. and we had 100 people out there, and it was wow. delightful, very, very comfortable. Um, so, yeah, thankfully, uh, the Coast Guard did, you know, put that second case on, on there. Um, yeah to give us a much more spatial area for entertaining and, and whatnot. Sure. Yeah. I've been there. I've experienced that. Yeah. It is nice and nice and roomy. Yeah. So Nick, you actually lived in the lighthouse for a while when you were fixing it up, right? Yeah. For six months. I, wow. I, I figured it would be cheaper uh, to live out there and not pay rent. And then I learned it was way more expensive to live off the grid out there. <laughs> uh. And uh, yeah, winter was not fun. So that's when I uh, became like a couch surfer at my friend's house. And she uh -huh. lived on her couch for, I want to say like a year or two, to be honest with you, because, you know, everyone knew they wanted that lighthouse saved and they were so curious, the community, what is he doing out there? And so they're, you know, here, sleep with me and do this. So they could almost be part of the inside track of, you know, 
oh, he's staying at my house. And so I get to hear what's going on and we get to go out to the lighthouse and, you know, when something's off limit for so long, but yet visual to everyone, you know, it really piques their curiosity. But yeah, you know, to be honest with you, the, the hardest challenge to live out there was, I know we'll, we'll get into it, is the ghosts out there. They would drive <laughs> nuts. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I do want to save that a, a little bit, but you know, I was, I was, I was going to say, uh, thinking about what you just said, I was out there one, one day with you. And I remember a couple of local guys showed up who just, you know, apparently they visited quite a bit. I think there were, you know, a couple of fall river guys. I don't know if you remember that at all, but they, uh, it's it sort of like it was their, their lighthouse. Like they just, yep. <laughs> you know, uh, which you can understand local people often feel like the local lighthouse is like a centerpiece of the community and it, it belongs to the community. Yep. Uh, so you must've had a lot of, both of you probably had a lot of experience of that sort of thing. We still yeah. do. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. I, I, I wish we could, we could uh, find more of the locals that have history um, mm -hmm. behind them, uh, family members. And yes. whatnot. I hear from a lot of the folks, matter of fact, a lot of the guests that have come to stay overnight, once they learned um, that it was available uh, about, about how, when they were kids, they would actually swim from the shore out to the lighthouse and mm -hmm. use it as their diving board uh, or mm -hmm. fish off it and things like that. And uh, one of the unfortunate things, uh, and, I'm, and I'm sure Nick can um, back me up on this, is that when the lighthouse in 1963 uh, was automated uh, and, they, and the keepers uh, removed um, and it went virtually you know, abandoned from 63 until Nick came to, to resurrect her. I'm told that so many locals got out there and broke in and stole everything. Uh, and to the point where we really have zero historical items from the lighthouse. And I know Nick, you know, when he purchased, he, he told me he, uh, uh, went on a search to try to find whatever he could locally, uh, mm -hmm. but to no avail. And uh, that's the sad thing that I find is like log books and things like that. Um, yep. uh, and I read how uh, a lot of the accents uh, within the, the uh, construction inside, they had brass railings and brass doorknobs and um, the portholes were brass, all totally torn out, ripped um which left the lighthouse completely exposed like nick said to, to to birds and and weather and i know he's being humble um <laughs> uh, but it from the photos i've seen it was a mess and how, what he did to turn that lighthouse around is simply amazing and as you know, Jeremy, um, he was awarded Light Keeper of the Year. He won't mention that, I'm sure. Uh, they got a Keeper of the Light Award from the American Keeper. Lighthouse Foundation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Back in 2018, um, you know, for the celebrate his efforts. So mm -hmm. we wouldn't have this beautiful gem that everyone is enjoying, uh, you know, if Nick did not make that commitment and that passion. So yeah, we, we're forever grateful. Yes, I, I second everything you just said. To go but, back in on that, yeah. uh, there's one spot on that lighthouse that I never touched. And I'm not sure if Kevin has ever gotten into the old cistern in there. Oh, okay. It looked like someone had filled it up with trash to the top. And I was like, there's no way in heck I'm climbing into this. But all for all you know, there could be a Fresnel Inn sitting down in there. You know, you never know. Right, you know, right. No, I've, I've, I've thought about kind of getting the ladder and trying to get up over there, but yeah, it looks a little creepy in there. So yeah, yeah. I kind of stayed away. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I remember peeking in there and thinking it looked pretty, pretty creepy. Uh, so Nick, why did you paint a red stripe around the lighthouse? 
You know, to be honest with you, red is my favorite color. So, uh, you know, people know when I've been to a lighthouse, uh, Hog Island Shoal has a red roof on it for a reason, but it was just a, a visual thing. We had those Brayton Point cooling towers that were not in any of the pictures when I bought it. So right. Just know. to clarify, they're talking about a power plant. Uh, yeah. It was they, a, a coal-fired mm-hmm. coal tower with the nuclear-looking cooling tower. Right. Everybody thought it was a nuclear plant, but it, yeah. it wasn't. Yeah. And so when you would come down the channel, you would see the pillars from the Braga Bridge, and then you would see the cooling towers, and then there was a lighthouse out there, and you really honestly don't really notice it until you get right up on it. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, people kept running into these piles of rocks around the lighthouse. And so I was like, you know, I need to figure out a way of making this place look like a Harbor Lights model. And I was like, we, we need to add some color to it and, you know, change it up a little bit. And the Coast Guard doesn't really use day marks anymore. And so the title didn't have anything distinguishing that it had to remain the original color. But the Coast Guard did contact me, I think in like 2013, like, or maybe 2014, and said, when did this get this red stripe on it? And I said, well, I don't know, like two years ago, but you're welcome to paint it back. And they said, oh, no, no, we'll just change the charts. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, once that stripe gone there, all of a sudden people are like, boom, what is this out here? And then yeah. when you get next to it, it just, I don't know, it just makes the structure more inviting to, I think. I agree with you. You know, it took me a little while to kind of buy into that <laughs> um, being, you know, kind of a, a lighthouse historian, kind of a purist. Yeah. I thought, well, geez, it never, you know, this is a, a day mark that it never had historically. Uh, it it seems uh, strange to me at first. And the more I looked at it, the more I thought, wow, this was brilliant. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it looks it looks so much uh, more attractive, as you said, more inviting. And it shows up so much better for from shore and from from boats yeah. and so forth. So well, and I think originally it was mm-hmm. painted bright red. And mm-hmm. then it went to like a brown color and then it went to white. So it's kind of incorporating a little bit. The case on it, I paint above brown to kind of represent the original. Mm-hmm. And then the red and white, and then there's black on the lantern. But you the having the top of those lantern rooms black, as you know, at Portsmouth Harbor will make it to where it's about 200 degrees during the summer. Mm-hmm. So painting the top red really does help, you know, drop about 30 degrees off that lantern room. So, yeah, interesting point. And so Coast Guard painted some lanterns green uh, yeah. back, I'm going to say, probably around the 1970s, 80s, maybe. Uh, Little River Light up in Maine, owned by the American Lighthouse Foundation. I think the green faded to a very light green, and now it continues to be painted in yeah. that light green color, yeah. which probably keeps it a lot cooler in the lantern room. Yeah, too. it's unique, too. Every time I see it, I'm like, where do they get that green color from? <laughs> yeah. Probably what you're saying, it faded, and someone's like, oh, this is the color. Yeah, yeah, I believe that's what happened. So, Kevin, uh, you're in your fifth year of owning the lighthouse. Have you uh, done any major restoration projects in that time? Uh, um, absolutely not. Um, Nick pretty much left did that it, for uh, you. Yeah. Did it all for us. Yeah, I mean, except for cosmetics, um, mm-hmm. we've painted it a couple of times, um, and you know, it's just minor repairs, rust, um, some some metal parts and 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 structural parts that have rusted out where we've rewelded in things. Um, uh, but mostly, it's just been you know, like I said, cosmetic. Uh, and being that it's, um, you know, a full-time, um, overnight, uh, facility now, um, 
Mm -hmm. just updated furniture and uh, internal things to, to, to make, you know, the, uh, the stay a little bit more comfortable for guests and a little bit more modern. Although I have many guests that keep saying, you know, stop modernizing it. <laughs> you know, we want to, uh, we want to stay, uh, um, we want to, we like the idea of glamping a little bit more than, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, again, I, you know, I'm, just come from actually a hospitality background way back when, and uh, just try to keep it as comfortable and cozy and, uh, you know, updated as, as possible. So, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, my major goal was to try to improve the ladder system um, for guests. And uh, unfortunately we came up with several different, um, you know, design ideas and uh, none of which the Coast Guard really favored. Um, and uh, just quite simply because anything attached to the side of the caisson uh, they feared might break off at mm -hmm. some point in the storm and being that it's an active channel, um, they did not want to chance that. So we're we're sticking with the original caisson and the in the nice steel rungs that are that are there makes it a little bit more difficult to get things up and down. But uh, um, you know that's all part of the it's all part of the fun. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to look speaking, at it. Speaking of yeah. bags of concrete, uh, Nick, yeah, um, slop them over my shoulder and just carry them up, and you do whatever you had to do. Uh, it's always amazing too because you know when we have our guests um, arrive we give them about an hour, hour and a half uh, tour uh, of the lighthouse and tell all the stories um, from when Nick owned it and the different things that he did. And, um, you know, we always, we always talk about how um, that, you know, we're trying to keep its original flavor. Um, but, you know, I, I, I want to be able to have more people enjoy the lighthouse and uh, far too often I have uh, our more uh, elder uh, population who, you know, who either grew up in the area and would love to be able to visit the lighthouse that uh, that they saw as children. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not as easy. And uh, you got to be, you know, fairly ambulatory to to climb that exact vertical ladder. Um and uh, so yeah. we have attempted to, to try to upgrade that, but uh, have not been able to come up with anything, um, you know, functional enough that, uh, um, you know, it's worth, you know, making the investment type of thing at this point. Um, yeah. You know, you're talking driving pilings, you know, around and, 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 and changing the look of the light and things. So we've just kind of left it as is and, uh, yeah. and folks still love it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, as you said, it's uh, it's part of the charm in a way that's uh, not the easiest place to get into, but yeah. for me, the offshore lights that take a little work to get into are always the most fun anyway. To learn more about Borden Flats Lighthouse and the overnight stays, go to BordenFlats.com. Reservations have already filled up for 2023, and Kevin Farias is taking reservations for 2024. Both Nick and Kevin have done a fantastic job there, and it's so great that the public has the opportunity to stay overnight at an offshore caisson lighthouse. In part two next week, we talk about the ghost stories of Borden Flats Lighthouse. And there are a lot of them. Mm. And rumor has it that Kevin Farias makes a special announcement in part two. Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, that's right. I'll give the secret away now. The lighthouse is for sale. Oh. 
Mm-hmm. But you can hear more about it in uh, much more detail in next week's episode. So cool. check it out. Yeah. Okay. As always, we want to thank all the members, volunteers, and staff of the U.S. Lighthouse Society and its chapters and affiliates. To learn more about preservation grants, the passport program, the research catalog, domestic and international chores, and all the things the Society offers, go to uslhs.org. If you listen through Apple Podcasts, be sure to rate and review us. If you have ideas for this podcast, you can email me at jeremy at uslhs.org. The philosopher and statesman Francis Bacon once wrote, quote, In order for the light to shine so brightly, the darkness must also be present, unquote. Wishing everyone a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa. Happy holidays, everyone. Next week's episode will feature part two of the Borden Flats interview. As always, to all our regular listeners and our new ones, thanks so much for listening and keep a good light. Out in the dark, I'm gonna let it shine. Out in the dark, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine Let it shine, let it shine